The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First Corinthians chapter 15, which is probably the most thorough uh, and uh, magnificent treatment of Christ's resurrection that the New Testament has to offer. And, and tonight we come to the end of chapter 15 and we get this, this jubilant climax as Paul wraps up all that he has said about the resurrection and just bursts forth in joyous uh, summary of all that we have in Christ uh, at the thought of his resurrection. And I have to, I have to uh, admit, I've, I've uh, in Sunday evenings before, talked about my love of snow. Uh, but snow gives me some guilt tonight because Dr. Light was going to get to preach this passage. And thanks to snow, I get to preach it instead. And he told me on Thursday, he said, you know, Chris, you owe me uh, on, on this one. He said, I almost stole half those verses just so I could preach them anyways last week, but he left them for me. Uh, so I'm thankful to him, uh, and I'm thankful that uh, we get to consider together this uh, wonderful and triumphant text uh, of Christ's resurrection and all that we have in it uh, tonight. So First uh, Corinthians 15, uh, join me as we read verses 50 uh, through 58. Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable And this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. God, this is your word. These are your words written through your spirit to your people. So I pray that we would listen tonight, uh, that we would be eager to know what you have to say to us. May we hear this text and rejoice in your salvation and live to the glory of this Savior all the more. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we jump in fairly directly with Paul saying, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's a fairly direct phrase 
that Paul starts out with and demands that we remember a little bit of the context of what Paul's been talking about in the last few verses. And so we really need to cast our eyes back to verse 35. Uh, Dr. Light considered uh, verses 35 through 49 last week, but the question that sparked this discussion in verse 35 was this. Paul said, Some one of you will ask, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And so Paul's trying to answer this question, what is the resurrection body like? How are dead people raised? What kind of body uh, do, do uh, resurrected uh, people have? Uh, what's this going to look like? And you can imagine the Corinthian Christians just sort of scratching their heads and trying to, to think, well, yeah, dead people raised, resurrection bodies, this is all great, but but really, how do I visualize this? What's it going to be like? And so Paul's in the midst of trying to answer this question. How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body will they come? And if you were with us last week, as Dr. Light talked about this previous passage, Paul has been laying out the fact that there are two types of bodies. There are two types of bodies. There are, uh, if you will, two patterns that all men fit under. There is the natural body and the spiritual body, Paul says. Um, Or, as he says, there's a perishable body and an imperishable body. And Paul's point was this. Every man who is descended from Adam has a body of dust. It's a natural body, a mortal body, a perishable body. All men from Adam onward share in this mortal, uh, natural body. But there's also another order thanks to Christ. And all those who are in Christ will one day bear another kind of body. It's a spiritual body, a spirit-filled and spirit-made body. And it is imperishable and immortal. And so Paul's been laying out these two patterns or these two orders, if you will. The natural that belongs to all descended from Adam, but also the spiritual. And all who are in Christ will one day inherit this spiritual, this imperishable body. And uh, Dr. Light got to handle the sort of complex theological language last week, um, and I get to uh, sort of sum up with the, the glorious conclusion of it uh, this week. And I think uh, Paul's, Paul's language certainly in this previous passage was a bit complex, and he's describing something that none of us have experienced None of us can say, oh yeah, of course, the spiritual, immortal, imperishable body. Got it. I know exactly what that's like. We haven't been there. We don't know. And so Paul's trying to give us some descriptions and some indications. And last week he used a a number of analogies to talk talk about this. Um, But as we we get into this passage, um, I think we can almost... almost sense Paul saying, okay, I've tried to describe this. I've given you analogies. I've tried to give you some logical arguments to describe these two types of bodies. But I know there's still going to be some lack of clarity. You're probably still wondering, okay, what exactly is this going to look like? What is the resurrection of the dead going to be like? What will I experience when Christ comes back? With what type of body will I have? And so, I think Paul, Paul comes to verse 50 and he says, we've described it, I've done the best that I can with languages and analogies, but let me tell you this, brothers. What do you need to know, brothers? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable 
inherit the imperishable. In other words, uh, if we're trying to figure out this whole change from earthly body to heavenly body, we should start with a fact that should be abundantly clear. And that is the bodies that you and I have now are not sufficient in and of themselves to dwell and reign with the eternal God forever. And I say that that's a fairly obvious uh, fact, and I think it's one that we all, uh, we all sense and feel. I was thinking about this myself this week at the, uh, at the ripe age of 31. I, uh, I already feel like my body is not doing the things that it did 10 years ago. Yeah, see, I just, some of you are going to groan and laugh at me, right? See, that's, that's, that's the whole point. That's exactly, uh, that's the point of what, uh, what I was thinking. I was uh, in, pastor's, in pastor's meeting, Pastor Irvin was bemoaning his past sports days and talking about his past sports days have led to the state of his knees now. And I was thinking, yeah, yeah my knees don't feel quite right either, but I probably have a ways to go before I should be complaining like that. But we know this physical body, if at 31 my knees don't feel like they did 10 years ago and I've got a long way to go, how is this body going to last for eternity? Flesh and blood can't dwell for eternity. This body that is under, under the, the process of, of weakening and, and wearing down can't go on for eternity when it doesn't last a few decades. Brothers, I tell you this. If you're wondering what this is like, if you're having trouble following my logic, we'll start with this. Our flesh and blood cannot inherit the eternal kingdom of God. And Paul's uh, focused on this very, very simple physical fact. A change has to occur. Something is going to have to change if we are going to dwell forever in the presence of God. And I think uh, commentators differ a, a little bit on this, but I think Paul's emphasis here in these verses is really on the physical change. He's not necessarily talking about sin and the cleansing of sin. Certainly that is true too. Certainly, if we talk about flesh and blood in our existence now, we would say, well, we are, we are not perfectly holy. Certainly, certainly, when I consider my own sinfulness, I would also say, I can't, I can't dwell in the presence of the holy God as I am now. A, a full and final cleansing, of course, through the blood of Christ, on the basis of Christ, and accounting on, uh, because of Christ, needs to happen. Um, but I don't think um, that that is what this passage is, is focusing on particularly. This passage is fo- focusing specifically on, on the physical fact that our bodies must be changed. Uh, there, there is a change that must happen. And so I think Paul is a- appealing with, with a blunt obviousness that our perishable body, our bodies that wear out and perish, will need to be changed in order for us to dwell uh, in all eternity with Christ. Of course, that's not to, that's not to deny the fact that, that morally we do need a change as well. We know that no matter how long we live, no matter how long the process of sanctification in this life goes on, there is no length of life that's going to lead us to the place of perfect holiness where we could stand before and in the presence of God. That won't happen. We, we, we know our experience with sin well enough as well. And so we need the cleansing gaze of Christ uh, in, in the moral sense as well, if we're going to dwell uh, with him forever. <clears throat> so uh, here, here Paul is saying, physically 
and we could add certainly morally as well, but particularly physically here, our flesh and blood needs a full change, a radical transformation if we are going to live forever in the kingdom of God. That's Paul's point there in verse 50. So now in verse 51, Paul then begins to explain what this change is going to be. If a change is needed, what is this change going to be? And Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Paul declares a mystery here. What is, what is a mystery? Well, a mystery is something that the Corinthians could not have figured out on their own. They're not going to be sitting around one day and say, ah, I know what's going to happen. Resurrection bodies, of course. And this is a mystery because it needs to be revealed by God. And Paul's saying this is not something you would, you would sort of reason yourself to, but this is a mystery. This is a truth that God has revealed. And what is that truth? That at the return of Christ, at the sounding of the last trumpet, both the living and the dead will be changed from perishable beings to imperishable beings. He uses that phrase, perishable to imperishable, immortal to immortal, several times. I think uh, three different times uh, in these first three or four verses. But that change is going to happen for both the living and the dead. And it's interesting, if you do a little comparison between 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians here, this question of what's going to happen to the living and the dead at the return of Christ Uh, comes up in both passages. And it shouldn't surprise us that the early church would have questions about what's going to happen both to Christians that are alive and to Christians who have died when Christ returns. And in 1 Thessalonians, the believers seem to express concern about what would happen to those who had died when Christ returns. And And the Thessalonians seem to have this question, well, if a believer dies and he's dead when Christ returns, is he going to miss out? Is someone who has died going to miss out on the glory of Christ's return in some way? And so in 1 Thessalonians, Paul sort of emphasizes, no, the dead in Christ will rise up first and will meet him in the air. They won't miss out at all. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul's answer seems to address more of the concern over those who are alive. And the logic here seems to be the question of, well, I could sort of understand how someone who is dead and then is raised again might be raised with a new body. But what about those of us who are alive? What, what is it going to look like for those of who, who are alive when Christ come to suddenly have a changed body? And, and Paul's answer in both uh, Corinthians and Thessalonians, both of them I think fit well. Paul was saying, whether you are alive or whether you are dead, both the dead and alive in Christ will meet him will be with him and will be radically and fully changed when we meet him. And that is the, the hope that Paul gives, that, that Christ, of course, gives uh, to both the living and the dead. So as, as Paul answers this here, he says, uh, we shall not sleep. Those of us who, who are alive, we, we shall not sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. I love the, I love the, the phrase there, that this this phrase of in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, describes how we will be changed. And the Greek word here, the Greek word for in a moment is atomos. And if you think about your English vocabulary, you might say, well, what word comes from atomos? Well, it's an atom. What is an atom? Well, it was the smallest possible thing that couldn't be divided any further. 
And the emphasis here is that the change is going to happen so quickly in such a small amount of time. There's no process that's needed. It's in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the smallest possible space. We will be changed. We will be changed uh, from perishable to imperishable. In that second, when we meet Christ at his return, though we remain truly ourselves, we will be transformed into immortal bodies, ready and capable of living with him, dwelling with him, and reigning with him forever. Now, I was trying to, trying to get a picture of this process. What, what, is it, what would it look like to be changed in a moment, transformed in a moment? And I'm sure there's no exact analogy, but as I was reading this and I was thinking about it, my mind immediately went to our family's uh, summer science project. My wife came home uh, one day. I came home from work, and I found a little, like one of those Jif peanut butter jar, uh, empty jars, and uh, inside was a caterpillar. And on the side was the guarantee that this caterpillar would turn into a monarch butterfly in 21 days or less. And uh, so we had this uh, caterpillar, or a monarch butterfly, and we had to feed the bu- the, this caterpillar a new milkweed leaf every day. And for weeks, three weeks, we're feeding this caterpillar every day, put a new leaf in. Caterpillar came on vacation with us, so we could give it a new milkweed leaf every day. So here's three weeks, I'm watching this caterpillar munch away at the, these milkweed leaves, thinking, when is this thing, you know, what, what's going to happen to this thing? I want to see it go into a cocoon. That's what I want to see. So finally, one day, we get back from vacation, and the caterpillar climbs to the top and hangs upside down from the top. And, and from everything I've read, that means it's going to go into its cocoon soon. So, I'm, yes, I'm going to see this thing go into its cocoon. So I'm watching this caterpillar. Nothing happens. I go upstairs to take something upstairs. I go upstairs, set something down, come back down, and the thing's in its cocoon. It's completely... <laughs> Are you serious? I waited 21 days feeding this thing milkweed for 21 days. I go upstairs to set something down, and it's in its cocoon. So I have to settle. Okay, well, I'm going to watch this thing turn into a butterfly from its cocoon. Three more weeks. It's in its cocoon. Finally, after three weeks, the cocoon changes colors, which accordingly, you know, apparently means it's going to come out soon. So I go off to work, and I said to my wife, watch. I want to know what happens here. Well, she goes get something, comes back, and there's a butterfly walking around. We, we, we spent six weeks you know, watching this thing munch its leaves and sit in its cocoon, and the two great changes happened in about eight seconds while we went somewhere. In the twinkling of an eye, transformation happened. And I can only imagine, as I think about our life, I can only imagine the extent of our life is God is certainly at work in our life. God, through His Spirit, is sanctifying us and making us more like uh, himself. And that process is going on throughout our life. But I can only imagine God saying, yes, sanctification's happening, but wait till I meet him, because change is going to happen like that. My people will be transformed fully, finally, and completely from perishable to imperishable, from mortal to immortal, and they will be beings capable and ready to dwell with me forever. In that moment of meeting Christ, we become the, the fully uh, transformed people, fully in the image of God uh, that we were created to be. And this is our hope. This is our hope that after God preserves us and refines us throughout this life, at His return, we will be transformed into co-heirs and co-monarchs, uh, if you will, 
with God, to reign with Him uh, forever. I love how Paul, Paul describes this change and this hope throughout Scripture. He, he describes it here as going from perishable to imperishable and mortal to immortal. But I love his description in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he points us ahead to our hope at the return of Christ. And he says this, at that time what is mortal will be swallowed up in life. What a great phrase. What is mortal will be swallowed up in life. Yes, we, have, we are alive now. But what we will be when Christ transforms our bodies is life to such an extent that it could almost not even be called life before. What is mortal will be swallowed up in life. Or perhaps um, we take what Paul says in Philippians three twenty one when he says that we await Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. All throughout the New Testament, we get this hope. Transformation, change from mortal to immortal, from mortal to life, from lowly body to glorious body. This is the hope that we have uh, in Christ. And I think this is both encouraging and challenging. It's challenging because it reminds us how deeply we need to be changed. And I've, I've, heard, uh, I've heard those, some who don't know Christ, some who, who do know Christ, say things like, well, you know, uh, this is who I am. Um, this is my personality. And this is how God has created me. So, you know, I, I can't change. I mean, this is just who I am. But passages like this remind us that the whole basis of our hope is that God can and will change us. Change is our hope. That's what we long for. We long for change. We long for change from dying physical bodies to eternal glorious bodies. We long for change from, from our sinful selves to, to holiness. Of course, God doesn't take away the marks of our personality or, or who we are, but he does radically change us. And we should be eager to see the areas where change is needed. We should be eager to grow and change in ways that we, that we can now and eager for God to complete this change when he comes again. So this is challenging. It reminds us how much we need to be changed. But of course, it's also encouraging because while well, we see how weak and, and, and mortal we are, apart from the work of God in Christ, here God shows us a glimpse into his plans. And we see his plan to transform us through the Spirit of Christ into the image of Christ. And what a hope this is. What a hope to look forward to. For you and I to go about our week to go about our days and to say, I'm moving toward a day when dead or alive, when I meet Christ, I will be changed into an imperishable, immortal, glorious being that reflects the glory of Christ, patterned after the image of Christ. That's the hope we have. The hope we have in our Savior. That's a glorious hope. And I hope that that's something that we have a holy longing for a holy longing for this change, this vision that Paul gives us, that, we, that will be ours when Christ comes again. You know, I was thinking about what, what does it look like to long for change, to long for this type of, of hope. And as I was thinking about that, I, I happened to read a story. Uh, the story was about two years old. It's from 2014. But in 2014, there was major medical headlines Uh, told the story of a man who had been paralyzed from his chest down. Uh, He had been uh, attacked and knifed in the back. 
and paralyzed by this knife attack from the chest down. But in 2014, the major medical headlines proclaimed that doctors had just completed uh, an incredible surgery where they took cells from his nasal cavity and implanted them in his spinal cord. And it caused the spinal cord to uh, come to life, to basically be able to, to rejuvenate. And this man regained his ability to walk. And I thought, what would it be like for a man to be paralyzed for the chest down and to say, I'm going to be able to walk again and to go through that, to experience that renewed ability to walk again. And actually, he, he was interviewed by uh, reporters and report, he said to the reporters, he said, walking again after this was an incredible feeling. And he added, when you can't feel almost half your body, you are helpless. But when it starts coming back, it's like you were born again. And I can only imagine that when we experience change from mortal to immortal, from perishable to imperishable, when this glorious body of Christ becomes ours by His grace, won't we be sitting there saying, wow, this is like being born again. This is life. This is what we lost. This is what was taken from, well, not taken from us. This is what we gave up at the fall in the garden. But we have it again, thanks be to God. This is new life. What a glorious hope we have in Christ. And of course, that's exactly what Paul highlights when he gets to verse 55. He highlights the significance of this change by saying, look, when mortal changes to immortal, when perishable becomes imperishable, death itself will finally be defeated. And at the thought of death's defeat, Paul breaks into sort of his poetic victory song here. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You can almost hear Paul taunting death. Yeah, death, you're, you're, the, you're the one who, who always levels all people. You're the one who always wins. Everyone ends up in death. No, we're going to mock death now, says Paul. Death, where's your sting? Death, where's your victory? It is gone. Death is defeated when this change comes about in Christ. Think about that fact. Death defeated. Death and taxes, the two you know, uh, most things that are guaranteed in life, we're told. And death has dominated the minds of, of most of humanity for, for uh, all of history. Some of you will know that the French uh, philosopher uh, Sartre once declared that the only question that any human needs to seriously think about is whether or not he should commit suicide. Why? Well, Sartre said, death is the end of all. Death is the guarantee. We're all headed to death. So the only thing you and I need to think about is whether we die now or die later. That's the only question for humanity to consider. But apart from Christ, if death is victorious, isn't that where we are? Do we die now or do we die later? That's the question we have. But, but death isn't the ultimate victor. Death isn't the ultimate victor thanks to Christ. Death doesn't remain in control. Death's defeat has already been assured. And its final destruction is right around the corner. Hope is before us. Joy will triumph. Life will reign. Because our mortal perishable bodies will be changed forever to immortal, imperishable bodies. And death will be fully and finally robbed of its power when Christ comes again. This is Paul's glorious statement. 
And I love verse 56 because Paul here, he sort of gives his jubilant statement of death is defeated, death is gone. But then he pauses. He pauses in verse 56 and he repeats, he reminds us, rehearses the story that led to death's defeat. You can almost see him saying, ha, death, you're defeated. And let's think again, how was death defeated? What was it that led to death's defeat? And this is what he rehearses in verses 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ. See, first Paul lays out death's power. What gives death its power? Well, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. If you think about it, the mere passing out of one life into another life doesn't have all that much terror in it of itself. If I pass from one life to another... How terrible is that? Well, it's not terrible or horrifying until you add sin in the mix and say that this death is the punishment for sin and this death is going to lead to eternal separation from any hope. Sin brings about death. Death came about as the punishment for sin and its terror is the judgment that is involved. So sin is the sting of death. And the thing, Paul says, that drives and empowers sin is the law. This, of course, doesn't mean that the law creates sin or that doing wrong only becomes sin when God reveals his law. It means, as Paul says elsewhere, that the law reveals and magnifies sin. The law shows sin to be what it is. The law shows sin to be the ugly rebellion against God, and it condemns all of us to receive the wages of our sin, death. The law reveals and magnifies sin. Sin brings death as its punishment, as what it earns. But, but in the face of sin and the law comes Christ. In the face of death's sting and its power came Christ himself. And Paul responds with this outburst of thanks and praise. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ. Because who fulfilled the law? Christ. Who took away the punishment of sin? Christ. So if death's sting and power come from sin and the law, and Christ has fulfilled the law and taken the punishment for sin, then the terror of death is now gone in Christ. And so Paul says, he he just comes to this outburst of praise. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ. This is almost the exact same uh, progression of thought that Paul had in Romans 7. Some of you know Romans 7. Some of you can think of Romans 7 where, where Paul is talking about Uh, the law of sin and death that reigns in his flesh. And he talks about what he wants to do, he doesn't do. And what he doesn't want to do, that he does do. And he comes to a point of saying, who will rescue me from this body of death? And what does he say? He immediately responds with the same cry, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For Christ came and fulfilled the law, keeping all its righteous requirements. Christ came and died on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin. And so Christ has taken the sting of death by covering our sin and taken away the power of sin by living the perfect righteousness and crediting it to us. When we were lost in sin, condemned to death, the infinite God, the only one who could give us hope, came and out of his own mercy gave us life through his own. And so we can echo Paul's refrain. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. 
but Christ came and fulfilled the law and paid the punishment for our sins. So thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, for through him, death can be defeated. Well, after this sort of jubilant celebration of Christ, Paul comes to his final verse in verse 58. And Paul does two things in verse 58. First, if you think back to four, or maybe it was five weeks ago, thanks to our, our snow, when we started verse 15, if you look all, or chapter 15, if you look all the way back to verses 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Paul started this chapter. He started talking about the resurrection with a concern. And his concern was that the Corinthians were, were wavering in their commitment to the gospel, that they were, that they were departing from the truth that he had preached, that they were abandoning the gospel as, as Paul had, had preached. And if you look back at verses 1 and 2, you'll hear Paul say, Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached, the gospel which you received in which you stand in which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And Paul's worried that some are not holding fast to the word he preached to them and that their salvation or what he had hoped would be their salvation, was a hope that was in vain. And so that was his initial concern. Are the Corinthians holding fast to the word that Paul preached? Well, Paul has now spent 55 verses rehearsing the truth of the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection and the future hope of the resurrection. And so in verse 58, to conclude, Paul comes back and says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. He started with his concern that they were not holding fast. Paul goes through and rehearses the resurrection and all of its significance and all of its hope and concludes, therefore, brothers, be steadfast and immovable. Don't depart from the truth of the resurrection. Don't depart from gospel hope. Don't depart from the historical fact of the risen Lord, which alone gives you and I hope. Do not depart from this. Be steadfast and immovable in this truth. Don't stop clinging to this hope, says Paul. But while he doesn't want them to depart from this truth, being steadfast and immovable in this truth also yields a final note of application. And Paul ends verse 58 by applying this hope of the resurrection to the Corinthians' lives. They are to be steadfast. They are to be immovable. But they are also to always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord their labor is not in vain. You know, it's interesting, if you think about it, if an outcome is guaranteed, does that make you lazier? Or does that make you more diligent? I suppose it depends on the context. If I were a student and I was told that it didn't matter how much I studied, it wouldn't matter, I would get an A on my test, it would probably make me lazier. But if the process is, look, if you study diligently, I can imagine a teacher, and and I've had teachers like this, who would approach a test and say, here's the material. I'm telling you what's going to be on it. And I'm not going to surprise you. I'm not going to come out with a test that is unfair or ridiculous. I'm not going to come out with a test that is on stuff you never studied. If you study, you will do well. That encouraged me as a student. That said, yes, I'm going to study diligently because I know this isn't wasted effort. If I study diligently, the result will be a good test. 
And you can sort of hear Paul saying something along those lines. Labor diligently in the Lord, brothers. Not because you have to earn anything, but because you know that labor will not be in vain. Maybe the best analogy would be a salesman. Could you imagine telling a salesman, look, if you go and make these sales calls, I guarantee sales will come from it. That salesman's going to make the sales call. The result's guaranteed. And what Paul's saying here is, look, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor in the Lord always abounds because it's the Lord who's at work. The final hope is guaranteed. He is the one at work. And this is such a comfort and encouragement to say the work that we do in the Lord, if we abound in the work of the Lord, that work is not and will not be in vain because God himself has determined the outcome. God himself has given us the sure hope of a reward. I was on a youth retreat this past weekend, and one of the great blessings of the youth retreat was having a senior pastor from our presbytery join us uh, for the weekend. And uh, Pastor Andriatis from uh, Faith Coryville shared a devotional with us on, on Sunday morning from Galatians 6. And if you remember Galatians 6, right at the end of Galatians 6, Paul gives the well-known verses, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will of his flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And this pastor was reminding us, he said, you know, usually when we hear that verse applied, it's usually applied to sort of uh, wayward teens. Like, if you do this, you're going to reap the consequences. Um, that's, how, that's how it's typically applied. But he said, that's not what Paul was saying. He was saying, if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap to the Spirit. And God will bring to fruition the work done in His name. No one is going to be able to stand up at the last day and say, ha, you tried to work for God, but that didn't work out too well, did it? God can't be mocked like that. If we sow in the Spirit, we will reap to the Spirit. And I think that's something along the lines of what Paul's saying here. Always abound in the work of the Lord, brothers, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not and will not be in vain. When you serve His church, when you declare the the name of Christ, when you labor for the Lord, that labor will never be in vain. There will be rewards reaped for that work. We do not need to, to worry that we will come to the end and say, wow, I sure wish I hadn't spent that time working for the Lord. That will not happen because we can be confident knowing the ultimate victory that Christ has already worked over death, knowing that Christ has already fulfilled the law, taken away the punishment of sin, guaranteed this future hope of being changed into His image. We know pastors, deacons, elders, deaconesses, Sunday school teachers, youth workers, nursery volunteers, brothers and sisters who encourage one another in the Lord our work is not in vain. So labor, work, it's guaranteed. This is such a great call to our labor in the Lord. Death is defeated. Hope is secured and guaranteed. So abound in the work of the Lord. It's the investment that is guaranteed to pay forever. And this is Paul's concluding application of the resurrection. If Christ has been raised, we will be raised. If we will be raised, death is defeated. If death is defeated, abound in the work of the Lord, for that work 
is not in vain. What a great hope. And so we conclude, brothers and sisters, hope in the resurrection. It's a sure hope and abound in the work of the Lord as we hope together. Let's pray. Father, that you would send your Son in history, a man who walked the earth, who died taking the penalty of our sin and rose to give us life, who rose a spiritual, imperishable, immortal man, that we might share that same resurrection hope with him, that we might share the hope of being raised immortal, imperishable, and spiritual forever. I pray that that hope would thrill us with this same joy that it did Paul, that we would look at that hope and rejoice at death's defeat, looking ahead to the great hope that we have of being together with Christ forever. May that not just keep our eyes forever gazing into the future, but may it give us the courage and the diligence and the desire to labor now for the Lord, knowing that that work will not be in vain. For He will bring all things to His glory for the sake of His name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.